Good morning, everybody, and welcome to our online worship experience. My name is Peyton Menzmeyer. I'm one of the ministers here, and we're going to continue our sermon um, sermon on the Mount series that we're currently in. G, or Tracy just uh, got us through this awesome section, but a really hard section about retaliation, and now we're working into a mountaintop moment. Maybe you've had those before. Those moments when you see some kind of beautiful mountain range for the very first time. I remember the very first time I saw the Pyramid of Giza and just standing in awe. I don't remember anything that my tour guide said, but I'll never forget the first time seeing them. And that's kind of how I feel approaching today's text. It's this mountaintop moment where no one has ever said anything quite like this before and truly lived by it. I mean, Jesus is going to hit us pretty hard with this. And so all I can really do is stand at the bottom of the mountain with you and uh, stand in awe and wonder at its beauty. I mean, this thing is absolutely spectacular and it has power to change communities, to change you and in, in your heart, but you have to stand in awe and reverence at it right now. And so as we approach this mountain, we can still feel the ache from the summit that we just climbed last week. Uh, so Jesus, he's moving us to a higher calling of love and life. He's exposing some deep, deep heart issues in our hearts and our habits that half the time we don't even realize are there. Jesus gave this example in last week's text. Where he said, imagine that you spent a week out on a fishing boat. Uh, for many today, that sounds like a vacation. For them, in first century Palestine, it was an occupation. But you spent, uh, you know, all week on a fishing boat knowing that every catch you caught was another, was more food to fill your, your, your family's bellies. And you know anything less, they go hungry. So you pull in your haul, you exchange it, you have your money, you're walking through the main courtyard area, you're in front of everybody and there's a table set up. It's the tax collectors. Well, they've already been here. They've already collected their taxes. What are they doing here again? You know you won't have enough to pay them and feed your family. But lucky for you, you know the person sitting behind the table. It's Zacchaeus. Oh, okay. I know Zacchaeus. We went to synagogue together. We grew up reading the Torah. Our kids, they play with each other. Our wives, they know each other. I know Zacchaeus. Surely he'll give me a break. So you approach him. I can't pay. And you're surprised when he stands up on the table and just nails you across the face. What do you do? Imagine another scene, you're sitting on a hillside enjoying nature, something your, your people have been doing for generations up to this point. You can feel the warmth of the sun on your skin, the kids are running around playing, uh, you're just relaxing and enjoying nature, and a garrison of soldiers comes over the hillside. They're patrolling, as they usually do, and one of the soldiers, he approaches you, he wrestles out of his pack, he throws it at your feet, he unsheaths his sword and points it in your direction. And he says, you're going to carry my pack to the next hillside or I'm going to kill you. How do you respond? Yeah, our muscles should still be sore from the summit that we climbed last week. Jesus says that when Zacchaeus, when he backhands you across the face, your response is not to hit him back. It's not to shoot some spitting, stinging word at him. It's not to walk away and ignore him. It's to say, Zacchaeus, you really seem like you're plagued with a lot. Do you need to get it out? Like, I'll, I'll give you my other cheek. Do you need to get it out? When that soldier approaches you and wrestles out of his pack and throws it at your feet, your response is not to fight back. It's not to ignore him. It's not to walk away. It's to say, man, you look like you are exhausted. 
like you're being plagued right now that you have a lot going on. Can, can I just not, not just carry your pack a mile? Can I deliver it to your doorstep? That's our response. And if you're like me, maybe you read this for the first time, maybe you read it for the hundredth time, and you're thinking, is Jesus, is that really the best response? Like to tuck my tail between my leg like a, like a scorned puppy dog? No, no, I've worked too hard for what I've had. I, I have too much to protect. No, I'm stronger than that. And if you have that reaction, which I have, you have to first realize, okay, well, that's all about what you can do and what you can protect. And secondly, Jesus is not asking us, asking his followers to be a Christian doormat, that people can walk all over you. Doesn't matter what they say, doesn't matter how aggressive they are, doesn't matter their their power of authority, what their agenda is, you just let them walk over you. He's not saying that. Rather, he's telling his followers to respond and to respond very intentionally. And it's that intentionality and it's that response that we're going to put into sharper focus this morning. And so Matthew chapter 5 is where we are, starting in verse 43. It says, You have heard that it was said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing the same? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even the pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. So it appears that the response of a Christ follower is this word agape in the Greek. Like according to Jesus, the response of a disciple of Jesus, whenever they encounter wrongdoing, whenever they encounter some kind of evil in the world, is not to do nothing but rather to agape. And that's extremely important in this passage. It stands as a mountain moment because people throughout history, Christian, non-Christian, when they're trying to decide what is the right human behavior, this is the text that comes into conversation. It's this moment right here. Something happens, Jesus says, when people learn to agape. And it evolves around this word. But before we can dive into this word, let's go back to our text in its entirety, because Jesus, he's pulled this little move a couple of times, six times, in fact, where he says, you have heard it said, but I say to you, do this. And if you're reading it this morning, it says, you have heard it said what? To love your enemies and, or to love, to love your neighbors and hate your enemies, right? But if you pull out a concordance, you will not find that verse anywhere in your Bible. It doesn't say it. Rather, Jesus is referring to Leviticus 19, verse 18. If you have your Bible, turn to Leviticus 19 just for a moment, because we're going to be referencing a couple of those verses here. But there it says very plainly to love your neighbor. But there's something missing in Leviticus 19, 18, and it's the hate your your enemies part. It's not in there. So Jesus is referring to half, but notice what Jesus says. He says very intentionally, you have heard it said. Not this is what scripture says. You have heard it said. You have heard it said growing up in church and synagogue, your pastor said it and you never decided to look it up for yourself. You've heard it said from your parents, your grandparents, as they taught you some ethics because you never challenged them or or questioned why they believe what they believe. You have heard it said maybe in your friend group or even to yourself, 
because you try to justify your own actions, but it's not there. And so what I want to do is I want to crack open a debate because this is a huge debate during this time about who counts as loving my neighbor. Like as we look at this Leviticus 19 passage, who counts? Does Zacchaeus count? I mean, he looks like me. He's part of my people, but he's already cashed in his chips to the other side. I mean, he's a traitor. Does he count? What about the Roman soldiers? They're not my people. They don't look like me. They're oppressing me. Do they count? What about my enemies? And if you're having this debate with first century people, somebody in the room might pipe up and say, well, in Leviticus 19, if you go above verse 18, starting at verse 15, you'll see that a whole slew of people are defined as my people. Again, if you read through that section, 15 through 18, you're going to see things like my people, Israelites, my neighbors. Again, in essence, it's saying everybody who looks like me counts as my neighbor. Awesome. That means the Roman soldiers are out of here. Zacchaeus may look like me, but he's not part of my people anymore. Somebody else in this debate might say, well, if you go a little bit lower, starting in verse 33 and 34, it says that people who wander into your land, strangers who are looking for asylum, who are looking for protection or some kind of safety, that those people should be counted as your own because you, Israelites, you used to be strangers when you came out of Egypt and God showed favor to you. Okay, again, this counts a lot of people, but Zacchaeus, he's my people and betrayed me. Roman soldiers, they are, came into my country, but they're not, they're not looking for asylum. They're looking for oppression and to rule. And what I'm trying to do is bring you into this debate. It's a raging debate during this time because for people during Jesus's time, this is the question. Who counts? Who counts as loving my neighbor? Because as a nation, they have been persecuted and oppressed by violent dictatorships for three times the existence of the United States. 600 years, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, Greece, Egypt, Rome, all of these oppressive nations. And so for a persecuted religious minority, this is the burning question. Who counts as loving my neighbor? And so Jesus picks up this Leviticus 19 debate. And he expands it and says the love that God commands in Leviticus 19, yes, it includes your people and the people who look like you. Yes, it includes foreigners and people who wander into your land looking for help. Yes, it includes your friends and your neighbors. Oh, and it also includes your enemies, the people you hate and you're not very fond of either. They hate you. You're persecuted by them. So where does Jesus get this? Where does he get this idea of loving your neighbors? And he gets it from two places, weather patterns and scripture. If you look at chapter five, verse 45, you'll see what I mean. Like somewhere along the way, Jesus, he began to, to notice how things work in the world. And he noticed that you cannot judge who is a follower of God based off of who is suffering and who is prospering. People who deserve rain and people who don't deserve rain receive rain and sunshine. Their crops grow and you cannot determine based off of a crop who is worshiping God and who is not worshiping God. Like the weather itself, according to Jesus, it reveals God's bountiful generosity. And Dallas Willard, he has this quote. He says, Jesus had a God-saturated view of the world. And what he meant by that is that everywhere Jesus looked, every breath, every living thing, every laughter, every friend, every truth about existence from the most minuscule to the most extraordinary, 
Jesus believed, it pointed to the character of God. It revealed something about God just by looking at nature and what's around us. People who deserve rain, people who don't deserve rain, they receive God's generous and gracious love. What a wonderful way to look at the world. Another way, wonderful way to look at the world is through the psalm, Psalm 145. And this observation shows that Jesus was raised on the poetry of the psalms. And if you're here watching this morning and you're wondering, what does an antiquated old book like the Bible, what value does this book actually have for my life today? And the answer to that, or part of the answer, is because you find truths about the world Like in Psalm chapter 145, I encourage you to go read 145, 9 through 12. But the very first part of 145, God shows grace to all of his people. Not those who honor him, not those who dishonor him. God is generous and gracious to people who hate him and who he's not too fond of either. Jesus was soaked in this idea, by watching the weather, by reading a scripture, and you could see him enacting it in these public meals that he would have with public offenders, the worst kind of people. It was this boundary-breaking act of welcoming grace, and it publicly announced in these meals with tax collectors and sex workers, it announced it doesn't matter who you are, it doesn't matter what you've done, it doesn't matter how the community perceives you, Jesus says you're always welcome around my table. And so now we can begin discussing the extremely unhelpful translation of the word agape, and that is love. Love. It's an extremely unhelpful word in the English dictionary. I love chips and salsa. Sweet and tangy and salty all put together. Get those nachos out of here. Give me the chips and salsa where it's an even dip and they're crisp every time. I love Jurassic Park. It's a nostalgia drive for me. I I grew up watching with my dad, and every time I watch it today, I remember great memories with him. And I love my wife with a depth that I cannot comprehend or express to anybody else in existence. Three different uses of the same word, but different degree of love given throughout. And oftentimes when we think of the word love, we think of warm, fuzzy feelings. So is Jesus telling me to have warm, fuzzy feelings towards my enemies? No, (laughs) no, of course not. It's a mindset. It's an attitude, Jesus is saying. And it's it's an action that flows from that mindset. God has chosen to agape his people, his enemies and the people who worship him. He's chosen to agape his people, and he shows that agape by offering hope to all people through Jesus. Jesus is not asking you to generate some kind of false, warm feeling towards your enemies. Rather, he is asking you to choose to view them in a certain way. To choose to view them the way God has chosen to view them. You see, within God's economy, that person is beloved. They are a human being. They are made in the image of God. And we have no right not to love the people God has already chosen to love. Jesus has chosen to love and to die for that person. Therefore, you have no right in God's kingdom to do anything short of the same. If you keep reading in Matthew chapter 5, verse 46, Jesus looks at people and he says, well, we're not, you know, people aren't all so bad. You know, we treat people fairly well as long as they're within our circles. If you were at church this morning, 
uh, on Sunday morning, you, I brought out a hula hoop and I represented this. And I said that, you know, whenever we're in our circle, we treat people fairly well if they are in our circle with us. It's the people outside of our circle that we're extremely selective and fickle with. So we walk around with our circles thinking, I'm doing pretty good at this loving other people thing. Like I got it down. But Jesus is not referring to the people who are voting for Donald Trump alongside you. Jesus is not referring to those who live in that upscale neighborhood that you do. Jesus is not referring to those who have the same education level as you or who wear the same kind of clothes that you do. Jesus, rather, he's referring to those who think differently and act differently and, and, and live differently and look differently than you do. Those who live outside of your circle. Jesus is not looking for you to operate in the same way that comes natural to you. And we all act natural. Think of when you do walk into church or a family reunion or something where there's a large gathering. Who do you naturally gravitate towards? Usually people inside your circle. Though you extend agape to those you know who extend agape in return, right? And that's extremely natural to us, but it's selfish. Rather, as people who are a member of God's kingdom... We should operate in a way that reflects our Father in heaven, which is exactly what it says in the very next verse. Matthew chapter 5, verse 48. Let me read it again. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's hard. It's one of the hardest passages in the Bible. It's one of those I'll never forget the first time I read it, thinking, there's no way. How am I supposed to accomplish that, Jesus? Part of it is the translation perfect, teleos. It can be translated as mature, something brought to its completion point. And when you read that, this whole verse, it should be both a promise and a command. It's both a promise of what will happen and a command of how you're to live. Like Jesus says, again, I had the hula hoop and I, I, I motioned this, but Jesus said there's something about when human beings intentionally step over some kind of relational boundary tribal line. There's something about when people step out of their circle and show some kind of benevolence or kindness or agape to those outside of their circle and not just outside of their circle, but those who hate you and you're not very fond of them either. That there's, there's something that goes against every natural intuition. And when we look at human beings outside of my circle with compassion and generosity, Jesus says humans are never more like God than in that moment. Humans are never more like God than in the moment that they step out of their circle and love people intentionally outside of it. There is something about love. We're not talking about the warm, fuzzy stuff, but choosing to look at people with dignity, despite the things that person has done against you or against other people, looking at that person with compassion and acting on that passion. Jesus says in that moment, people align themselves with the image of God. They step and beat with, with God's heartbeat. And Jesus says when followers of him, when they can do that, things happen in the world. There's a sobering story of a man that we're all too familiar with. His name is on name. Many streets are named after him. He's an icon of justice. He's one of the most requoted pastors of the, of the Christian gospel. His name is Martin Luther King Jr. And there's a picture that I encourage you to look up. Uh, just type in Martin Luther King and the burnt cross. 
And there you're going to find him kneeling down, picking up a cross. It was a day in 1963. Martin Luther King came out of his home to find a burnt cross, something that, that happened all too often in his life. He went back inside, put on his best suit, came back out. Reporters are already there. And he picks up this burnt cross and he prays that God will show favor on whoever placed that cross there. This was a man who deeply loved Jesus. He had his own flaws. He wasn't perfect, just like any of us, but he was fully motivated by the kind of agape that we're talking about this morning. I want to read to you a quote uh, from Martin Luther King Jr. It's a long quote, but it's worth the time. It says, To our most bitter opponents, we say, We shall match your capacity to inflict suffering by our capacity to endure suffering. We must love our enemies because only by loving them can we know God and and experience the beauty of his holiness. We shall meet your physical force with soul force. Do to us what you will and we shall continue to love you. Throw us in jail and we shall still love you. Send your hooded perpetrators of violence into our community at the midnight hour and beat us and leave us half dead and we shall still love you. But be assured that we shall wear you down by our capacity to suffer. One day we will win freedom. Not only for ourselves, we shall so appeal to your heart and your conscience that we shall win you in the process. And our victory will be a double victory. Love is the most durable power in the world. This creative force, so beautifully exemplified in the life of our Christ, is the most potent instrument available in mankind's quest for peace and security. Isn't that what we're looking for? Peace and security. And so maybe you're at the conclusion of of this and you're thinking, why don't I have any enemies? I don't have people who hate me and I actively hate them. And I say, sure you do. We all have enemies. We all have those outside of our circles. Maybe for you right now, your enemy is Nancy Pelosi or Donald Trump. Maybe right now your enemy is that kid who's always talking bad behind your back or that coworker who never seems to show up on time for their shift. Maybe your enemy is that gay neighbors that lives next door or the, pro, the pro-choice activists who parade down the street. Maybe your enemy is some kind of some selfish family member that you have or an ex who keeps hurting you and sticking you with their daggers. No, we all have enemies. We all have people who live outside of our circle. Then Jesus says we don't we shouldn't just have compassion on them, but we should actively do something about it. And maybe that begins with getting rid of our circles. But how do I do this, Jesus? How do I love those who actively hate me and persecute me, who I don't agree with their politics, who are leaving our country down a dark road? Jesus, how do I love people who hurt me, who are doing things constantly to hurt me? How do I love the unlovables in my life who even associating them with myself will hurt my reputation? How do I love those kind of people? And Jesus says, watch me. Watch me. As he hangs on the cross and he utters his last cry, he says, watch me. And we're watching Jesus every week as we take part in a sacred meal. As Jesus was dying, he didn't go through a a mental list of everybody he was dying for. 
It wasn't like, yeah, Lucy made it, but Bob didn't. Sandy got it, but um, Stacy didn't make it this cut. No, Jesus died for every person. Your enemy and you side by side with each other. And every week we're watching Jesus in the sacred meal that we take. And if you walk away from the Lord's Supper, not ready to love the unlovables, you're not paying attention. You're falling asleep. You're not a follower of Jesus. You're not modeling your life after him. You're just picking up a principle here and there. No, the meal, the sacraments that we take, the bread and the fruit of the vine, it's a meal of full submission of my pride. It's a full submission of my self-preservation. It's a full submission of my desire for my country or my career. It's a full submission of my pleasures and my selfishness. It's a meal of watching Jesus hang and die. Why? So that you can live and continue to sin? No. And so what the meal serves us every week for us here at our church, it's our call to action. And so what I want you to do is you take part in the Lord's Supper this morning is I want you to think about your enemy. As you take the bread and represents the body of Christ given for you, I want you to know and remember that Christ's body was given for your enemy as well. As you drink the juice that signifies Jesus' blood that makes you holy and clean so that you can approach God, I want you to remember that the unlovable in your life is also made holy by His blood. Watch me, Jesus says. And go and do likewise. Let's pray. God, our Father and Redeemer, while we were still living within the sin of our day today, you died for us. You hung on the cross, innocent and pure, and made us so that we are no longer strangers of God. Christ, you have become our cornerstone, our foundation, the mold by which our life is modeled. Jesus, you began the good work of restoration and you will bring it to completion by the renewal and the transformation of the human heart, of my heart, God. With love, with agape, pierce our hearts of distortion and leave us naked and exposed to you, to ourselves. And God, help us, agape, not in the ways of selfish gain, but as a response to the open handed, boundary-breaking agape that you announce to the world. We remember, we reflect, and now we go and do likewise. Amen.